who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For we were, for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. What a beautiful song declaring it was for me. In a sense, it is a declaration of what is described here in giving glory to God. The verses that we'd like to look at this morning in 1 Peter is in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And verse 12 speaks of those who shall behold our lives as Christians and glorify God in the day of visitation. That glorify God is what you hear sung just now. A declaration that it's for me. An acceptance of His grace and mercy. And in this day as we continue and then this afternoon and time of communion and remembrance, let us keep the message of that song in the forefront of our mind and never forget. Continue in this day and this week and throughout our lives that it was for me. And why for me? Oh, what a perfect introduction to our message this morning. Let me look at the, with you the first two words, the address of these verses this morning. Verse 11, dearly beloved. The reason that Jesus came to this earth is because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here, it's because of His love. And we as believers are dearly beloved. This isn't just Peter writing to these Christians in Asia Minor, addressing them as beloved by Him. I'm sure he loved them. I'm sure he loved those churches and the people in those churches. This is an address speaking of us as loved by God. We are a people dearly beloved. Peter is about to enter into a section dealing with how we live our lives. He deals with a section of how we submit ourselves in different situations of life. And before going into this section, he addresses us as dearly beloved. It's fascinating because he goes on and says, I beseech you. This is fascinating. This here, Peter, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This here comes from God. God could have said, as my creature, I command you. He has the right to say so, right? He has the right to command. But God chooses to approach this section dealing with the very every aspect of our lives, not by identifying us as His subjects, which is fascinating, because the section actually is dealing with areas of subjection. But yet God doesn't invoke His power and His authority at the start. Rather, instead, He addresses the Christians as dearly beloved. And He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I beseech you. Now, that's such a fancy word, we don't use it very often, do we? Well, what it means is it's a, it's a very strong word of pleading, of begging. I beseech you, I plead with you, I beg you, please, please. Please do what? Well, before he goes on and gives the, what he wants, he's pleading with them, beseeching them to do, he yet again identifies who they are. 
He identifies them as the dearly beloved and as strangers and pilgrims. Now, we've already looked, actually, at both of these words because they've already occurred back in chapter 1. Here we're dealing, in fact, the very first verse speaks of the strangers that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Well, let's again remind ourselves, we as a people are dearly beloved, dearly beloved by God, albeit we are strangers and pilgrims. Well, the idea of a stranger is one who is from a foreign land, who has been sent to a different land for a specific purpose, but he hasn't come to that land for the specific purpose of assimilating into that world. In fact, the most accurate way of describing it is one who is an emissary or an ambassador from a foreign land. You wouldn't expect an ambassador or an emissary from a foreign land to come here to the United States and to settle in and become an American. Why? You might even consider that treason of the part of his own nation. No, that's not what he is. He is one who is of a foreign land. He is of a foreign nation, of a foreign culture, and he comes to another land for a specific purpose, and he's a little strange. And that's okay. We accept that, don't we, for ones who are strangers? Or do we? Well, he's citing this aspect here for us because as believers, as Christians, we are little Christ's. We are followers of Christ. We have a citizenship that is in heaven. And we have been sent to this place. In this particular case with 1 Peter, it's cities throughout Asia Minor. We here, South Bend, Indiana, we are in this place for a particular purpose. But it's not our home. It's not our permanent dwelling place. It's a place where we must not lose our identity, nor our culture. Now, I'm not talking about our identity or culture as we often think of those things. But if we continue on here, what we're going to see is, is that as Christians, we, we live within this world. We are sent into this world. We have a particular purpose. And that purpose isn't to become like the rest of the world. In fact, we have been identified in the preceding verses as a people who are holy, that is, set apart. We are described in just the few verses before as a peculiar people. We are distinctly different. Well, that might cause some trouble, as we might see as we continue on. But there's the idea of a stranger. The stranger is one who is in a strange land. He's in this place for a particular purpose, and he doesn't assimilate into that region or into the culture of that place. And we're also like pilgrims. Now, a pilgrim, when we think of that, we might evoke different images in your mind, depending on who you are and your background. But the idea here is the idea of one who has set up his home alongside another person in a strange land. But it's not a permanent home. It's a poem as passing through. Now, so often today, when, when we travel, we, we just get in a car and we go, and sometimes we just drive and drive and drive until we get to our destination. Or sometimes we drive to the train station and we jump on a train and we ride the train to our destination. Or we drive to the airport, we get on an airport, and we fly all the way across the country or around the world to our destination. Remove the modern transportation idea and go way back. A pilgrim is one who is on a journey. And as he's on that journey, he stops at houses along the way. That's what a pilgrim is described here. We all, as Christians, are on a journey. Now, our destination is in heaven. But on this journey... We set up our house alongside strangers, people who aren't on the same journey as us. And the point here is, is that we don't set up our houses to settle into our houses. We set up our houses knowing that it's just temporary 
on the journey we are on to heaven. And it's alongside those who may or may not, and in this particular case it's presumed, not on the same journey as we are on. We are strangers and pilgrims. Now, most people have a nostalgia of home. I do. I go on trips. I like going places. I like seeing new things. I like going to new places. But I like going home. Most people like going home. But be careful, because that home really is in heaven. And we are just pilgrims on a journey that will lead us to our home. And this is important because that makes us feel somewhat out of place. Um, how many of you like staying at hotels? Yeah. How many of you want to live at a hotel? Edith wants to live at a hotel. Or no, that's, that's Victoria. Hotels have pools and food. It depends what kind you get. But, you know, most of us, we don't want to live at a hotel. So we need to be careful in how we live and recognize that in this life, our homes, our places of comfort and peace are just a waypoint in the journey to our real home, which is in heaven. And with that, think about it. Would you want to live in a hotel? And the idea of not wanting to live in a hotel or live in, in this continual non-settled state causes you to perhaps be a little edgy, a, a, a little <clears throat> feel discouraged, frustrated, um, feel out of place. I think that's why Peter, here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is combining these two concepts of dearly beloved. I acknowledge that you are strangers and pilgrims and that you don't feel at home. But when you don't feel at home, that's okay because you aren't at home. Know that you are dearly beloved. We're dearly beloved. Imagine that and take time to account for that the next time you are tempted to feel alone, to feel betrayed, when you feel attacked, when you feel not at home. Know and remember that you are dearly beloved. It's even more significant here because as this passage continues on, he's going to speak to them about how they live their lives. But it's important to know that before he gives them instruction on how to live their lives, or I shouldn't really say instruction, before he beseeches them on how they ought to live their lives, he establishes this identity for them. So often, our troubles come because we have an identity crisis. Who are we? What is our purpose? Where am I? Where am I going? Many times, people struggle with Christianity biblically because they don't recognize that as a Christian, you become in society a stranger and pilgrim. You, you can't continue on being who you were. That's not who you are anymore. You are now dearly beloved, and your citizenship is in heaven, which means you're going to feel out of place and awkward in this world here. It's a fact. And it's really important in how you live. So here Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives the identity you're dearly beloved. You're strangers and pilgrims. And as strangers and pilgrims, he says, I beseech you 
abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. But what are these? What is this? Well, the idea here of abstain doesn't mean just to not participate in one time and one occasion. It's, it's an ongoing idea. It's an ongoing, as the pilgrims and strangers, as you are progressing through this life as a pilgrim to your home in heaven, abstain from fleshly lusts. Well, what are fleshly lusts? Let's start with the word lust. We perhaps don't use this word commonly in everyday language. It carries the idea of our passions, our desires, the things for which we long for. And the context determines whether or not it's good or bad. I think every one of us have in our lives at one point or another lusted after something. Well, we think of that right off in a negative context, but it doesn't have to be in a negative context. I, I've one time said to somebody when, I, when there were a plate of cookies sitting on the table, I was, and, and they were just sitting there, and we were having a meeting, and the meeting was going long, and all this time there's a plate of cookies just sitting on the middle of the table. And, and finally the host said, well, let's have some cookies. And I said, oh, I've been lusting after those for an hour. And the host kind of looked at me weird. Well, what I was using is the word in a, really, in a sense, in a positive context, but in some senses, it, was, it could have been a negative context, too. That's what's actually kind of interesting about lusts, is there is a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a discernment as to the morality of our desires. God has put in us desires, many, many desires that are strong, and in some context, the fulfillment of those desires are wonderful. In fact, I think of Proverbs that speaks of desires coming that are trees of life. Wow. Uh, but actually, some of those very same passions and desires can in other contexts be fulfilled that are absolutely abominable to God. And yet, actually, the passions in some ways are identical. Here's described as, as fleshly lusts. Now, the concept and idea of flesh throughout the Bible is, is quite complex, and we don't have time to go into all of it here this morning. But one of the nuances and the aspects of fleshly lusts are, are those things that we desire that are not according to the Spirit that is God, but are of, are of ourselves, sometimes related to our actual physical flesh. Our flesh desires food. Our flesh desires sleep. And there's other things that our flesh desires. Now, it's perfectly natural for us to desire food, right? We need food to sustain ourselves. But it becomes a fleshly lust as described here when that desire is gluttony. Do you see it? There are many lusts. There are many desires that we have, and there are, when it's a fleshly lust, it is, it is a desire that is not according to God's way and God's Spirit's leading, but is of ourselves. And sometimes it does have to do with the satisfying of our physical, fleshly passions and desires. But it's not limited to that. And the reason we know that is because in other passages of scriptures, it goes beyond that. In fact, Peter himself, if you turn the page over to chapter 4, deals with the whole idea of the flesh and the spirit. And when we come to this passage, we'll deal with it more, but I want to jump ahead and give you this perspective to help us understand the idea here of fleshly lust. Notice here that these are fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now look with me at chapter 4. He describes there, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. 
that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. This isn't speaking of a race in the sense of non-Jews. This is speaking of Gentiles as in a people who are godless, immoral pagans. So he says, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Here he's listed specifics of the will of the Gentiles, the pagans, and a description of the flesh. Now, we're going to come to this, and it's connected in this part of Peter because it's all part of it. But basically, what he's describing here is, is some of these lusts of the flesh, these passions, these desires, these wills of the Gentile, lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is a, is a, is deals with immorality, sexual immorality, um, all the way from the little, little hints of it, to the, to the jokes of it, to the innuendos of it, to the outright uh, perversion of it. It's a pretty big spectrum. Lasciviousness. It's really dealing with all that is before the actual acts of immorality. Here it is again, the word lusts. Here, passions, desires, strong desires. Here he describes one of these as the excess of wine. Revelings. These are, these are wild parties that are banquetings, that are gluttony parties and abominable idolatries. See, in this particular region of the world, idolatry was rampant. And so here we have pilgrims, Christians, who have their homes alongside pagans, Gentiles. These who, who have no problems going out and getting themselves drunk. Who, who have seen nothing wrong with living in lascivious lives of, of sensuality and immorality. In fact, it was all mixed in together with their religion. They would go to the temples and they would there get drunk. They would be gluttons and they would have, have parties filled with all kinds of sensuality and in many, many occasions, grossest of immorality. All combined together. And it wasn't just at the temples. It would spread to every in so many different aspects of their lives. You learn more of some of these ancient cities of that time period, and, and immorality was spread and sprinkled throughout all aspects of their lives. And here, Paul's writing to Christians who are there, pilgrims on a journey through life, whose house is next door. Now, I... We live in somewhat of a moral society. But as time goes by, it's not quite so moral. And there's differing degrees of people whom we have our houses set up next to. Most of us would rather not choose to set up to somebody who lived this kind of a life, would we? But yet, are we pilgrims abstaining from fleshly lusts? Turn with me over to another passage written by the Apostle Paul. Again, though, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 deals with uh, very much the concept and ideas of living our lives in the flesh or living our lives in the Spirit. Peter said, abstain, I beseech you. It could have been a command, but he recognizes, I think there's some significance that it's a beseeching rather than a command because sometimes when we get a command, <laughs> we say, not me, I don't do what I'm told. I, people don't tell me what to do. I don't know if you're like that, but most human beings have a little bit of that in their flesh. <laughs> uh -uh, I'm not told what to do. I think there's some significance in the, I beseech you. 
I beseech you, I plead with you, I beg you. We could do that a lot more, I think, as parents with our children, too. Sometimes we want to give the command and state it thus as this, but really it needs to be something that for them comes from their own hearts out, not just an outward conformity because you're being forced to or made to or pushed down into. And so there is this war. There's a war against your soul. Now, we're going to learn some more about what the flesh is and other aspects of it and how it's manifested and its lust. But we have to also recognize that there is this war. There is a battle. Not only are we strangers and pilgrims, we're also in enemy territory. Enemy territory. It is a war. And it's important to recognize that. So now we turn over to Galatians chapter 5. And Peter is dealing with this situation. And he writes in verse 16, This I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That is a very key, vital instruction. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For he goes on, The flesh lusteth against the Spirit. This is that war. Against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Do you see the description of the war against your soul that's taking place here? But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And here now Peter, or Paul, is going to give a list of those things that our flesh works out. And some of them are related to our actual physical bodies, but some of them are related to our actions of the mind and heart, not necessarily the physical body. But what are they manifested? Adultery. Fornication. Fornication is any kind of sexual immorality. Uncleanness. Lasciviousness. Sensuality in all forms. Idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Variance. This, this carries the idea of, of strife that comes about by the varying hatreds and insistence upon their own ways and selfishnesses that come. So it's a strife. Emulations, relating to an idea of envies and jealousies. Wrath. Strife. Seditions heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. We could keep going is what he's saying. You get the idea? Works of the flesh. He makes a very bold statement here. Of the which I tell you before, as also I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These are not things done by the children of God to be inheriting the kingdom of God. Now he does a contrast, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. Meekness is the idea of sustaining under pressure. Temperance, the idea of being under control, not just in how you handle your alcohol, but under control in all aspects of life. Against such, there is no law. 
And they that are Christ's, the dearly beloved from Peter, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. We're in a war. He has appealed to us, Peter, to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. Paul describes that war, that campaign, not just a single battle, but an ongoing campaign of war. He describes it here as crucifying the flesh. Well, what's crucifying? Nailing it to a cross till it's dead, dead, dead. Do this with the affection and lusts of the flesh. For if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We are dearly beloved with the Spirit of God. Why would we walk in the flesh any longer? Let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. This isn't of the Spirit. This, again, is of the flesh. Now, oftentimes when we look at the fruits of the Spirit and we look at the works of the flesh, we stop here at this chapter divide. And in some ways, it appears that the topic changes a little bit. But it doesn't. It really takes into consideration that as strangers and pilgrims in this life, we abstain from fleshly lusts. Here the admonition is by walking in the Spirit. That is, trusting, believing, yielding, surrendering to the Spirit of God. He's the one who will give us the victory. He's the one who will then bring forth these fruits of the Spirit. But it's not just about us as our own little pilgrim. We have all kinds of pilgrims, don't we? We have a body full of them. We have a church full of strangers and pilgrims. And you know, we need each other. Brethren, chapter 6 of Galatians, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, that is those who are filled with the Spirit, those who are walking in the Spirit, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him which teacheth in all things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As ye have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, remember back at Peter. He's describing abstain from fleshly lust that war against the soul. We're in a war. The flesh against the spirit. We've been given admonition. Walk in the spirit. Ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Be led of the Spirit. Bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. Ye that are spiritual, restore those who have overtaken in a fault. And then look here at verse 7, Galatians 6, 7. It says, be not deceived. It's interesting. We have a military campaign, a war, a spiritual war in our lives. And the greatest weapon that our enemy so often uses, our adversary, the devil, is deceit, lies. Oh, that's not so bad. That's okay. Or in other cases, you're worthless. So many lies he throws at us. You're not worthless. You're dearly beloved and you're fighting in a war, and be not deceived. There's another aspect here of what it is. For it goes into the sowing and reaping idea here. I know we're not preaching through Galatians, but it's parallel ties in with First Peter in this war. And in the sowing idea and in the reaping idea, 
one of the reasons why so often we are overcome by our lusts, the lusts of the flesh, is because we keep feeding it when we're actually supposed to be crucifying it. Do you see? We, we feed our flesh. We're not supposed to walk in lasciviousness, but yet we entertain ourselves with lasciviousness. What are we thinking? We're feeding ourselves sensuality. And then we wonder why we reap in pure thoughts and temptations of struggles that are immoral. Well, no, no, no. We don't sow to the flesh. We need to sow to the Spirit. We crucify the flesh. That doesn't mean we nail ourselves on a cross or somehow we physically mutilate ourselves. That's not what it means. Rather, it means that those passions, those desires that are not of the fruit of the Spirit, but are as lead to or parts of this, we don't feed it. We don't sow to it. But so often we're deceived. Notice here the, the introduction to this is, be not deceived, God is not mocked. It's a real battle. And it's not just described here in 1 Peter or in Galatians. It is also described over in Romans chapter 8, where there he writes, Peter, or Paul again writes, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We don't owe anything to our flesh. We have no obligation to live or to serve our fleshly lusts. For it tells us in Romans 8, 13, for if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. That's how, that's basically the same thing that Peter was saying over in Galatians 5. But if ye through the Spirit, notice that through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Well, what's mortify? Kill. Destroy. Crucify. So we have these lusts, these fleshly lusts that are warring against us. It's a battle within us. Do we recognize the battle? Do we recognize that we are strangers and pilgrims? And though all people around us may live as the Gentiles in paganism and all different variances of it, we identify ourselves and know, wait. I'm a stranger in this land. I'm a pilgrim in this land. That's not how I live. And though everyone around me is living in the flesh, I do not live in the flesh. I recognize that it's a war, and I don't. And this makes a difference. Because then in verse 12, Peter says, he's appealing to the dearly beloved, he says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation." He goes now from dealing with your own fleshly lusts and brings it to your actual conversation. Now, we've covered this before, but I keep finding people who say, oh, I didn't know that. In your King James Bible, when you find the word conversation, it's not talking about sitting down and having a conversation, talking to another person. It includes that, but it's a whole lot more. The word conversation has the idea of how we live. And we still use this idea when we talk about our walk talks louder than our talk. You ever heard that phrase? Your walk talks louder than your talk? Because the way we live, the way we walk, the way we conduct ourselves in life is communicating. It's a conversation. And here he is saying, having your conversation, not just when you talk to your neighbors, when you talk to the strangers next door, when you have conversation in every way that you live, every part of your life, all of it. He says, may it be honest among the Gentiles. Now, honest here carries the idea of being true, but being true in a beautiful and glorious way. Meaning that when those pagan neighbors okay, 
will take into consideration a variation of pagan, right? When they see your life, do they take note and say, that's a beautiful life. That is a beautiful person. That person interacts with his wife in a beautiful way, in an honorable way. That person deals with his children in an honest and glorious, beautiful way. And you think people don't talk like that. And you're right, they don't. But the mind subconsciously takes note of things like this. And sometimes it causes trouble. It convicts them. Described right here. He's saying, have your conversation honest among them, living it in a purity, in a true way that is beautiful. Um, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers. In fact, if you look over at verse 4, he talks about them thinking it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. I don't think any of us can even begin to comprehend the kind of evils that were being spoken against the Christian, the Christians in Asia Minor. Some of the, some of the writings and the records of how they described Christians are... They were spreading lies and false accusations that, that um, when they would have their communion that they were, they were killing babies and drinking their blood. Imagine having that rumor spread about our church, especially in the context when communion was to only believers. And yet this nasty rumor would spread abroad. They would hear about them having love feasts. Now, we don't use that phrase anymore. Perhaps we don't use the phrase anymore because of how they used it. We don't want it used against us. A love feast is the fact that we, sit, we celebrate uh, and we have a meal together that is a meal of love and sharing. But they would take that play on words and context and they would turn it into, into debauchery parties of gross immorality and they would actually say that's what Christians were doing. There's records of that taking place in this time period of history. They, they would just speak against them as evildoers. They would hear about them saying, oh no, we cannot bow to this idol or this image. It doesn't matter if the magistrates or the king decreed it. I will not worship and bow to Caesar. Oh, they were perceived and accused of being rebels, rebellious, usurpers of authority, anarchists which is actually why the next part of this passage actually deals with that. Because they did in some cases have to say we ought to obey God rather than men. But yet Peter says in every other case, obey and submit. Let's going to go into that next. And all kinds of rumors and nasty things were being said about Christians. And so what Peter is admonishing them is he's saying, wake up, I beseech you, Abstain from the fleshly lusts that war against your soul and have your conversation, your way of life, honest among the Gentiles, among the pagans who see you. Have it honest. That though they speak evil of you and sometimes persecute you as implied and later referred to specifically, they're going to see your good works. In fact, it says by your good works which they shall behold. These very people who are spreading lies about you and rumors about you and twisting what you believe will glorify God in the day of visitation. So Paul is, or Peter is laying this out to the dearly beloved, saying your lives, in the way that Peter, Paul said it in Titus, adorn beautify, decorate the doctrine of God. Your lives are a living witness to the lost around you, to the Gentiles around you. Do they behold an honest life that they sit back and behold and glorify God? Now, different people have struggled with this last phrase. They shall glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, if you know your Bibles or you've even heard me preach on different passages, we find this word visitation used throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, particularly Jeremiah used this 
to speak of the day when God would visit his people and judge them. And if he found wickedness, he would judge them in punishment. And very frequently, most frequently, that's the idea of visitation, God visiting in judgment and punishment. But not always. In fact, in studying this passage, I've been fascinated by this word visitation and studying it anew and again more in light of the New Testament. It's actually the same word translated later in the same chapter as bishop. And what is a bishop? Bishop is one who looks over something. So you see how the idea of the visitation is? The bishop, who in this case here is described as God, Jesus Christ, the shepherd and bishop of our souls, last verse of the chapter, Here, in fact, it speaks of us as you were sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. What's being described, I believe, verse 25, is tied to 1 Peter 2, end of verse 12. The visitation is a visitation here of overlooking and extending grace and mercy, if it will be accepted. They have the choice when the bishop visits. Yes, will they glorify God or will they turn from Him? Because a day will come, and this is still an ultimate fulfillment of this, when every knee shall bow before that bishop and confess Him as Lord. And so the question is, for you today, have you been visited by the bishop of your soul with grace and mercy? Have you accepted him or have you rejected so that when that bishop, that overseer comes back the next time, the next time you stand before him, you will confess him as Lord, but will then be judged and punished. Here, it, could, it, has, it has a nuance of both aspects, this idea of the overseer visitation. And those who have put their faith in Christ when the visitation comes find mercy and grace and those who have not find judgment. Here, what's being described is that we as dearly beloved are strangers and pilgrims, and the way that we live our lives, the way of our conversation, when those around us who are pagan, and I don't mean that derogatorily, sometimes we try to lift up ourselves, putting others down, but those around us see our lives do they give glory to God and want to receive His salvation? Do we live our lives in such a way that people around us say, that's beautiful, and receive the mercy and grace of God that you've received to the glory of God the Father? Are we a light set on a hill? We're supposed to be. And what did Jesus say is that light set on a hill that's watching? Matthew chapter 5 says there, we are a light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. It's fascinating where Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount is near the Sea of Galilee. And I remember one night we stayed on one side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the side that is is dark. And we could look across the sea and the the city of Tiberias was on the hill. And the whole, whole hill was lit up with lights. We could look over to another part, and you could not see anything. But the, all, it, just in, it looked as if it was in the sky. There was a single light, one light bulb, up on the top of a mount just south of the Sea of Galilee. And from any point of the Sea of Galilee, you could look in that direction, and you could see that one light. That one light. Ye are a light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's what Peter's talking about here. Yes, you're strangers, you're pilgrims, you're dearly beloved. 
I beseech you, abstain from fleshly lust. Have your conversation, your way of life, honest among the Gentiles. That whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. I extend to you this morning the beseeching of Paul, which is really the beseeching of the Holy Spirit. Good God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are your dearly beloved. Lord, help us to both acknowledge and recognize that we are strangers and pilgrims in this world, that our home is in heaven. And as we recognize that, may we mortify the lust of the flesh, crucifying the flesh, realizing and recognizing and truly engaging in the battle through your spirit and abstaining from the lusts of the flesh. Lord Jesus, be our captain, be our commander, be the one who fills us in the fight. Give us the victory, just as you have guaranteed. And Lord, help us as we live. May we be a humble people before those who see us, whether in our homes, yards, community workplaces, and even church. May our children and all those around us see honest, beautiful lives. That's really your life, you living in us. And Lord, may we not be glorified, but when people see us and see how we live in your spirit and how we walk in your spirit, and when they see the fruits of the spirit, when they see the light on the hilltop, may they glorify you. May they experience and receive your mercy and grace so that when the day of visitation comes in its ultimate time, they will be saved. Lord, we need you every day. We are a weak people. And as we learned this morning from King Uzziah, Azariah, may we recognize that you, Jehovah, are our strength. You, Jehovah, are our help. And as we seek to engage in this war, in this life, may we day by day live according to the truth of Uzziah and Azariah, knowing that you are our strength and our help. And may we rest and hope in you in this battle. We praise you now and give ourselves to you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.